0: Holy God, we believe that the Bible is your word. We believe that it is inerrant, authoritative, and powerful. And so we pray that as your word is read, that we would listen conscientiously and that you would open our hearts to be transformed by it. This we pray in the
1: name of Jesus. Amen. Today we will be reading from John 1, 1 through 18. And then from chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. In the beginning was the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then we will skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, was made, he has made him known. And then in chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: If you have little ones who uh, are going over for children's worship or nursery, uh, Miss Brittany will be leading them that way, so you can dismiss them accordingly. Jonathan skipped those verses because I told him we were going to bump them the next week. He wasn't just uh, omitting things from the Bible. Uh, Lucy goosey. Every year we try to spend about a quarter of our year preaching through a portion of one of the four Gospels. And last year, after seven years of doing that, we finished the Gospel of Matthew. So today we're beginning the Gospel of John. What should we know about John and his gospel? Well, John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, and he was one of the fishing partners of Simon, uh, Peter, and Andrew. Um, He's also known as the beloved disciple because out of the 12 disciples, he was the one who was the closest friend of Jesus. Now, John's gospel is very different from the other three gospels in the New Testament. I mean, like, really, really different. I'm sure this is going to come up at various points during our study, but the most impactful difference that I can see is this. The gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are classic biographies. They're simply retelling uh, the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And the gospel of John does that, too. But as John is telling the story of Jesus, he's also weaving a theology of Jesus. And don't mishear me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were theologians in their own right, and they knew for sure who Jesus was theologically. But John is very explicit in his goal for writing this biography. I think it's actually more accurate, instead of calling it a biography, to call the Gospel of John a theological biography or a biographical Christology. Because as he is telling the story of Jesus, he is telling us how to think about Jesus. Who is this one? And I say all this with remarkable confidence because near the end of John's gospel, he tells us his reason for writing. Jonathan read it just moments ago. Let me read it again. Look with me at John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. He's getting to the end here and he says in verse 30 he gives us a little disclaimer now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name John wrote with a crystal clear mission statement in mind and that mission statement guides what he wrote in this biography and what he intentionally left out and what was his goal he said that these are written so that you you reader of this biography regardless of the century in which you read it so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the son of God And that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants you to read this gospel and to believe two things Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is the Son of God. And so, to begin our study in the gospel of John, we're going to explore what John the Apostle means by these two things, but I'm going to do them in reverse order. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus' divine sonship, the the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you like take notes, Uh, there's not many notes because I don't have blanks. You can write this one down. That's my first point. Jesus' divine sonship describes his relationship to God. When he says he's the Son of God, that's describing Jesus' relationship to God. Now, I'm going to give the whole gig away. The second point is that his being Christ has to do with our relationship with humanity. But the fact that he's a son of God, his divine sonship, this is describing his relationship to God. So all of you, I've just dragged you into it. You're now an official reader of John's gospel. You're going to read it for a while with me. And John says in his book, this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God. John is convinced, and I am too. That understanding and believing Jesus' relationship to God, understanding how Jesus was connected to God, what was that like, you need to believe that. It is essential for you to have life, to understand the relationship, and to believe in the relationship between Jesus and God. So do you understand what it means that Jesus is the Son of God? And more importantly, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Go back with me now to John chapter 1. You don't have to hold your finger in John 20. I'll recite that verse about a thousand times, but I think you've got it by now. While you're turning to John 1, uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you know. In December 2018, I preached a whole sermon series on John 1, uh, 1 through 18, uh, and I'm not going to go as deeply today as I did then. So if you want to go back and dig a little deeper in this chapter. Um, that's going to be available to you on Facebook tomorrow, I think. Um, so that link will be on there tomorrow on the church Facebook page, or you can just go to the church website and, and look for Advent 2018, um, and you can listen to those uh, those sermons on this chapter. But let's let's jump into this wonderfully deep chapter. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What what was Jesus's relationship? To God. Well, John begins to paint that picture for us starting in the very first verse of his gospel. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen... His glory. Glory as of the only what? Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Who's the word? Well, we cheated. We read the end of the story. Went to the back of the book. We looked in the last page already. And John told us in, in chapter 20 that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in verse 14... John's talking about this enigmatic word figure who is filled with glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The word in chapter 1 is called the Son, and Jesus in chapter 20 is called the Son of God. Therefore, this unnamed word who took on flesh and dwelled among men is none other than Jesus. But So why not call him Jesus? <laughs> why this term the word that's not used anywhere else for Jesus in the New Testament. Well, it's two reasons, so far as I can see, that that John uses this title, the word for Jesus. First of all, I believe John is intentionally drawing parallels with Genesis uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Let's start with Genesis 1. Kids, in Genesis 1, how did God create? You guys remember? There's one action that God does in Genesis 1, and Then there's light, and then there's the planets. Y'all remember what he did? They're thinking. Grown-ups, y'all remember what God did? He spoke. A word came from God's mouth, and everything came about from nothing. It was his spoken word that brought all things to be. Now, what Genesis 1 doesn't tell us is the mechanism and the means. Okay, so God said it, but you know what what happened then? Did everything just pop into existence, or was there something that happened in response to God's spoken word? So John the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins to fill in the gaps for us. Jesus, the living word of God, carried out the spoken word of God. As the Father spoke, so the Son acted. Thus, verse 3 tells us in John 1, all things were made through Him, through Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So God the Father and God the Son worked in tandem in the process of making all things. What the Father said, the Son enacted. That's the first reason I think John uses this name for Jesus, the word He's showing us the relationship between the Father and the Son, going back all the way, creation. But there's a second, and I believe secondary reason for John's use of the title word. Anybody know the Greek word for word? Surely you do. Well, That's right, logos, right. You get the English words logic and prologue from logos. Logos was used several different ways uh, within Greek philosophy by people like Heraclitus, Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics, most consistently, especially by Heraclitus, Plato, and then the Stoics, this notion of the logos or the word meant this. The logos is the reason, the logic, the order behind everything. When you look at the world and you think there must be some meaning, there must be some Urge that's compelling this thing to keep moving forward. Some reason behind it all. If you want to understand reality, you're trying to understand the logos. The word behind it all. When you put all that together, John is saying, if you want to understand the reason and the meaning and the purpose behind existence and all creation... Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Word. He is the meaning and purpose of everything. So John is showing that Jesus fills in the gaps in both the Jewish and the Greek ways of understanding reality and existence. Jesus is inextricably tied to the Creator and indeed the creation that's just like five verses in. So already you can see that this is clearly a very theologically loaded gospel. He wants us to know exactly who Jesus is. But let's not get too distracted. We're trying to understand, not the word right now, we're trying to understand what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God. What is Jesus' relationship to God? Let's look once more. Verse 1. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So what is Jesus' relationship to God? Jesus is God. But he's not all of God. With my kids, uh, we, we have this little back and forth theological catechizing that happens in our home. One of our kids will say, God is Jesus. And I'll say, no. Jesus is God, but God is not Jesus. Because Jesus is not all of God. Jesus is a distinct person of the triune God. He's the Son, but He's not the Father, and He's not the Spirit. And with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus has always existed. Granted, we don't see the Spirit yet in chapter 1. We'll see that in two weeks when Jesus is baptized. Jesus was not created. Rather, he participated with the Father and the Spirit in the act of creation. And so that means that Jesus existed before he was a baby, before he was incarnate in human flesh. In fact, the life that we have within us was breathed into humanity by Jesus. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So if I see Genesis 1 paralleled in verses 1 through 3, in verse 4, I see Genesis 2 paralleled. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Kids, here's another question. Maybe you all remember this from Genesis. Adam, the first human being, what was he made from? Y'all know this. Y'all just dust. Thank you very much, Miss Sally. We'll count you among the little ones today. He was formed from dust, but then Genesis two says that God breathed life into him. So let me ask you a question: When God knelt down into the dust and molded Adam's form? When he leaned down and breathed life into Adam's lungs. Who was that? I believe that it was Jesus. The son of God. The word. Knelt down into the dust and made humankind. And he breathed life into Adam. It says in verse 3 that life was in him and that life was the light of men. Jesus, the Son, breathed life into humanity and on that day we were filled with his divine spark. This might surprise you, but John Calvin once said that sin is not our nature. Sin is not our nature, but it's derangement. God, God created us good in his Image. We were made to reflect God's beauty, God's character. And though sin has mangled that, where did we begin? The light of God was breathed into our first parents by the Son of God. And through sin, we've become mangled distortions of the image of God. To quote Master Yoda, we are luminous. Beings, are we not? Filled with the light and life of God. And what that means is that Jesus, with the Father and the Spirit, is to be both worshiped and glorified by us. Who is Jesus? He is our creator, He's our life giver, He is the source of all good things. Are you starting to see the relationship between Jesus and God? Are you seeing what it means that he's the son of God? John's going to continue painting that picture throughout his gospel to help you understand what it means that he's the son of God. But he continues later in chapter 1. Jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Pay attention to this. This is a remarkable verse. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What more do we learn about Jesus' relationship to God here? We learn that when Jesus became flesh, we as humans became able to see God clearly. Why? Well, because Jesus is God, he who stood at the Father's side, and also because Jesus came to reveal God the Father to us. So when you hear Jesus, and when you see Jesus, and when you understand Jesus, you're seeing hearing, and understanding God the Father too. In the Son, we see the glory, grace, and truth of God the Father. The apple, as it turns out, doesn't fall far from the tree. Now, this relationship between God the Son and God the Father is complex, but it's not impossible to grasp. The important thing, though, is John reminds us He doesn't say these things are written so that you would understand completely. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God. And that by believing you might have life in his name. So what's more important than the question, do you totally understand how the Trinity works? And do you totally understand the relationship of God, the son, to God, the father? What's more important than that is the question of belief. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Let's talk about religion. You know, religion gets a bad rap these days when, uh, of course, the preacher's going to say that, right? When unbelievers talk about religion, they usually mean, you know, organized, institutional, oppressive, moral regimes. It's not just unbelievers talk about bad about religion, though. When Christians talk bad about religion, they usually mean legalism, uh, ritual rote repetition... Or some graceless gospelist neo paganism. That's not what I'm talking about. I want us to think for a second about old school, ancient, weird pagan religion. You know, you've imagined this in your head, maybe I'm the only one that has, but you know, where people made sacrifices and looked to the stars and bowed down and paid obeisance to idols, invisible demonic entities, you know, mythology and superstition, all that, right? Humans have always done that. Why? Why is it that rational, intelligent beings... for the record, humans weren't a bunch of idiots 5,000 years ago. We were just as rational, intelligent then as ever. Why did rational, intelligent beings worship and sing and dance and shout and give up things precious... To them, in order to worship invisible things. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to know God. They saw the beauty and the order and the majesty of creation, and they knew, they just knew that there must be some first cause behind it all. There must be some unmoved mover that's moving these things. Forward, and they wanted to know who that one was, so they pursued him with vigor. We even care anymore. Do you want to know God? It's almost as though, in our industrialized technological environment, we've become less rational and less intelligent than our forebears. We don't have the time to see the beauty and order of creation and we don't have a desire to know the invisible one behind it all. And so we don't sing and dance and worship and give ourselves over to the invisible behind the visible. Satan Satan doesn't even need to make the gods like seem cool anymore, right? You don't you just don't hear any great like fake god stories going around where they got weird names and multiple arms and they're doing, you know, killing a lot of people. We're satisfied with the nameless gods of distraction and efficiency and success. Uh, Granted, the old school gods were mostly about sex and power too. People don't change that much. But my point stands, do we have left in us any eagerness or urge to know and to experience transcendency? Do we want to see the face of the divine to drink in the essence of the other? Do you want to know the meaning of your life and indeed the meaning of existence? This transcendent truth have any value for us? It does. If you do, then believe this. Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe that, then you believe that Jesus is the one source of the true knowledge of God. And if you go to Jesus, you'll find God. You'll see God. You'll experience God. You can know God because Jesus is God. And He makes known God the Father. And as we'll see later in John's Gospel, He gives God the Spirit to you. John's Gospel is written so that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you understand what it means that Jesus is the Son of God? And more importantly, do you believe that He is the Son of God? Do you hunger to know God? And have you turned to Jesus that you might know God, not only objectively, but also subjectively, relationally? That's not the only thing that John says we must believe about Jesus if we're to have life in his name. He also says that Jesus is the Christ. Now, if Jesus' divine sonship describes his relationship to God, Jesus' Christhood describes his relationship to humanity. That's my second point. Jesus' Christhood describes his relationship to humanity. Am I the only person hot or are you all hot too? Cool. Great. I can promise you it's not a fever. I've been clear for about 60 hours. It's just I'm wearing 18 layers up here. Christ, as it turns out, is not a last name. He wasn't the, the, the son of, of Mary Christ. This was a title. And in Hebrew, it's the word Messiah or Meshiach, which in English means anointed one or God's chosen one. There is so much that can be extracted from, from the title Christ, if we were to unfold it, because there are three different offices in the Old Testament that were anointed ones, whom God anointed as leaders of Israel. So you have the kings who are anointed, you have the prophets who are anointed, you have the priests who are anointed. And the title Messiah, Christ, Anointed One shares characteristics of all three offices. So when John calls Jesus the Christ, he's saying that Jesus is the culmination of all those offices. Jesus is What's his relationship to humanity? Jesus is the king of all humanity. Jesus is God's prophet to all humanity. And Jesus is God's great high priest to all humanity. All that is wrapped up in the Christhood of Jesus. But as we did with his sonship, let's see how John describes Jesus' Christhood in John chapter 1. What is Jesus' relationship to humanity? Look at verse 4 again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Uh, it's not uncommon uh, to hear people say that we're all God's children, kind of that Coca-Cola mentality. We're, we're, we're all God's children. John disagrees in verse 12 those who believe in his name that have the right to be called children of God. Let's think about that. So every human being is created in the image of God. There's something of God imprinted on every human being, that life light from Jesus. And that alone gives every human being dignity and worth. And we should treat them as such. But not every human being has the right to be called a child of God. In fact, no human being on their own can claim to be a child of God. We don't have that relationship with God anymore. We've been cut off. Why? Well, to use John's language, we're in darkness. And that darkness pervades us. And as you'll see in John chapter 3, we love the darkness. Because our deeds are evil. We were once filled with the light of God, but something has changed. We were once children of God, but now we've been cut off. But who's Jesus? He's the Son of God. We aren't children of God, but He is. He has a different relationship to God than we do, and He's not born of us. He's a, a foreign introduction into the human family line, into our flesh and into our way of life. And while we have darkness in us, in Him is light and life. Look again at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world didn't know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So what is Jesus' relationship to humanity? He has come to rescue us from a fate that we didn't even know we had, that we could feel it in our bones. As Socrates taught, in his Allegory of the Cave in Plato's Republic. I know y'all are reading Plato this week, probably. And Socrates was not a Christian, uh, but it's 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 a good illustration. Socrates taught this in his Allegory of the Cave. He said, it's as though every human being is born into shackles in a deep, dark, lightless cavern. And if that's what we are born into, that dark, dank existence is all that we know. So being shackled and wanting to see the light, but never quite seeing it. Man's struggle for enlightenment, purpose, and prestige, that's normal to us. It's all we know. And yet we hate it. We just want to understand why we exist and what's going on and why is the world broken and how can it be fixed. Deep in our souls, we long for something more. And for Socrates, the goal is somehow, he doesn't explain this in the allegory, somehow to become unchained... And climb forth from the cave into the light of the sun. But Christ has done something much, much better. He who created the celestial ball that we call the sun. He who burns with the divine light that gave us life. This one descended into our dark cave. And rather than being overwhelmed by the darkness, he overcame it. And what does the descent of the Christ to us mean for us? It doesn't mean enlightenment. That's what Socrates wanted, knowledge. It doesn't mean that. It means something much more. Because Jesus' light is not knowledge. His light is life. His descent to us makes it possible for you to have a new life life. Freed from the shackles, freed from sin, freed from futility, freed from death. But this giving of life is not automatic. John said these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says he was in the world... And the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So his coming doesn't mean we just have life in his name. No, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Christ descended to us, but you will not have the life that he brings if you do not believe. What is Jesus' relationship to humanity? He, as our first life giver, offers us new life. He, as our first life giver, offers us new life. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus, who first breathed life and humanity in the garden, this same Son of God offers eternal life to sinful humanity. What did God's law, received by Moses, what did the law accomplish when Moses gave it? It showed us definitively that we were chained by our sins, that we were dead in our transgressions. The law, if you read the first five books of Moses, you're going to learn real quick that you can't fix yourself. You can't change yourself. You cannot save yourself or any of us from this darkness. We are stuck. The law shows us our need of a savior. But what did the incarnation of Jesus do? What did him descending as Christ do? He offered us grace upon grace. What we cannot achieve on our own through works of the law. What we cannot achieve through our highest, most sincere intentions. What we cannot do through religion. What we cannot do through a pursuit of enlightenment. What we cannot do with anything. Jesus himself provides for us. So here's the question. Do you want to be set free? From the futility and the misery of the darkness that we inhabit. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know the meaning of existence? Do you want to know the purpose of your life? Do you want to see the face of God and not be consumed? Then believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? To believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's it's, it's quite straightforward. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is this. Believing that Jesus is the only way for humanity to know God's grace. That's it. That's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Is to believe that he, Jesus, is the only way to know God's grace. Apart from Jesus, every human being will know God's wrath one day. They'll know God but if you want to know God's grace If you want to experience his grace If you want to be set free from your chains To live life with God Jesus is the only way There's no other way Do you believe that? This is the whole purpose of John's gospel It was written reader So that you may believe That Jesus is the Christ And that Jesus is the son of God And that by believing you may have life In his name So do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That He is the ever-existent second person of the Trinity who participated in creation and first breathed life in humanity? Do you believe that Jesus is the one and only way to know the transcendent Father? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And do you believe that He's the Christ? That the Son of God took on flesh to give new life to those who would believe in Him. That He stepped down into our darkness to do a divine rescue mission that we could not achieve for ourselves. Do you see the futility of all human religion seeking to climb our way, out of, uh, our way to God, seeking to pull the shackles off of ourselves, when in reality, God stepped down into our darkness that we might know Him and trust Him, and by believing, have life in His name. Do you understand and believe who Jesus is there is one way to know God and there's one way to eternal life and it's Jesus the word son of God and the Christ know him and believe in him alone let's pray holy God thank you for your word even when it is beautifully mysterious it is still so clear Jesus is the Christ He's the son of God Jesus is the only way to you and he's the only way to eternal life So Father I pray for all who are here Holy Spirit that you would grip our hearts that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Set us free from the bondage of sin and death, that we might live life in your light, as followers of you, O oh Son of God. In Jesus' name that we pray.